I want to first of all thank Dr. Yossi Simpson, who is sponsoring the Ilunishmas, his grandfather, Harav Eliyahu Ben Harav Shimon Aaron, um, uh, Rav Simpson, who was the Gabai of the Rebbe Riatz. A lot of, a lot of great Yechus. It's wonderful to see multiple generations of Simpsons in the room as well. And Metz uh, Hashem, he should be a Meditz Yosher for you and the family always. Um, special Mazel Tov, just uh, coming out of the Shabrachas. Eli Surowitz is coming out of the Shabrachas, Sophia. Last, last evening, it should be a continued reason to come together, Mr. Hashem, for continued smachais. Um, we also want to wish a very special Mazel Tov to Mr. Mail, who is celebrating his granddaughter, Daniela's wedding this afternoon, which is a, a, a huge Mazel Tov and a Mitzvah Hashem. You should watch many of the grandchildren, many of the Eneklach um, get married and build their own mishpachos under your guidance, under your, and you and Estelle for many Solange Yaron and Hashem together. <coughs> um, and it's Mr. Mel's Hebrew birthday on the sixth day of Hanukkah. Tomorrow, which is um, actually the time that the wedding is going to be, so Baruch Hashem, the Chain year will be gazunt. <laughs> Oh, it's, 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 there we go, at the time of the wedding. So, Mitzvah Hashem, you should walk up to that chuppah on your birthday. Mitzvah Hashem. Okay, so as we start, for those of you who've recently visited Prague, um, when you visit Prague in the Czech Republic, which is a beautiful country, actually an Israel-loving country, one of the few in Europe still left, and um, you, go to, you go to visit Prague, Prague is a major major tourist venue um, today. And when you visit the Jewish quarter, you have this un uncanny feeling of Jews being a museum piece. All the shuls are museums, with the exception of the Altenai shul. And everything over there is, is uh, commercial. It's all commercialized, and uh, the restaurants and the shuls, everything is, everything is about what it was and, and trying to make uh, a few good, uh, um, few good dollars off it. Um, and uh, you have this uncomfortable feeling of walking through in front of, you know, at the back of a group of tourists all wearing cardboard yarmulkes, you know, and talking about this ancient thing which used to be a Jew, and you, you try to want to scream out, we're here still, we're, we're, we exist. In, the, in this, you actually pass in the Jewish quarter the statue you see on the right over here on the top of the page, which is a statue of the Maral of Prague, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda Lau, um, who was the who was a Maral, very respected individual in, um, in, in his time, living in the 1500s. In fact, so much so that they even erected in the town square, they erected a statue of him. If you go to the, the, the graveyard, to the, you'll notice there is, on the left is his, um, his actual tomb. And on his tomb, if you, you, it's hard to see in the picture, for those who visited the cemetery, it's all full of coins. Right, everybody says, oh, this is a big rabbi. So everybody's like, you know, okay, yeah. It's like, you know, like, we'll put the coins on it. Maybe he'll help us. But um, it's a very unusual kind of, kind of graveyard to visit. Now, the interesting thing is, is if you were to ask your average tourist or your average Czech, you know, what it, what it is that, uh, that was special about him, I think and many, for many Jews, we all say it was the Golam, right? And there's the Golam restaurant, and there's the Golam tour, and there's the, you know, the journalist who went up the stairs and never came down again, and are you going to be the next person? You know, there's the, all the, all the, the particular um, stories that surround the Maharal. When I was in high school, a particular Rebbe of mine who was an expert in Maharal said, um, it's a pity because his works are by far much more important than anything, any, any rumors of, of golems that ever were or could have been. And at the time, it was kind of disappointing because, you know, the golem is a very exciting kind of story. But to be honest, the more we actually de delve into his works, the more we appreciate just how magnificent he really was. Forget all the rumors and the protection and so on that he afforded the Jewish community. His works are, are remarkable. So... As it happens, he has an essay, which is a rather short essay for the Maharal, on Hanukkah called Ner Mitzvah. And um, I know it, this, is, this is actually the example of it. This is not how long it is. This, most of this is footnotes and introductions and, and outros and epilogues. So this is, this is the Rav Hartman edition. It's a very short essay in and of itself. And he covers a number of topics. What we're going to do today, this is the game plan, is to study a little bit of the Maharal on his own terms. And we're going to do simply three paragraphs. That's it. Three paragraphs is the Maharal with a little bit of expansion. And the, the Maharal has a very, very interesting idea. 
which is about to uh, uh, set up, he sets up an idea which is, we'll call it a spiritual rereading of history. That's, uh, that's really essentially what he's doing. Meaning, we can look into ancient history and antiquities and we can read about the Seleucid Greeks and we can read about the Hashemunayik dynasty and we can read about all those historical um, aspects of our history. We can read Josephus from now until tomorrow and it's, and it's really a riveting read, believe me. But he's not going to be doing that. What he's going to be doing is saying there's a certain framework within which this history occurred. Let's try and understand that framework. I didn't have a chance to wish Mazel to Dr. Honigman, who celebrated a, a beautiful Bar Mitzvah yesterday as well. Mitzvah Hashem, continued, continued nachas. Um, so here's how we're going to do it. Before we even get to the Maharal himself, let's, let's, take a, uh, let's take a quick tour into just the, onto the second page. The framework that he's going to be working with, uh, as simple as it may seem, is really essentially three circles. They are the Greeks, the Temple, and the Kohen. If we think about it from that perspective, there are, there are the Greeks which conquer the temple and the Kohanim which reconquer the, the temple. Those are the three spheres that we're going to be working with. And we're going to have to really question each one of those. So meaning to say, why was it that, the, that, that it was specifically that the saviors of the day were the Kohanim? Couldn't it have been? Couldn't it have been anybody else? You know, like, was there nobody else who is passionate enough to lead the rebellion. So you say, well, those are the people who walked forward. They stepped forward at the right time. Okay, that's, that's uh, that. And, and if, if that's the answer, then, then okay, that's why we're looking at it. But let, I think that there might be more to that. So. They also were in shape. They ate a lot of meat. So they had strength. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not going to disqualify the theory, so it's so definitely, definitely a theory. Um, but there might be something more to it. There were no that, So there were no carbonists? Well, there were carbonists, just to be fair. When the, when the temple was, there were various stages of Greek uh, Hellenization, but there was a fellow called Jason who, who, um, who bought his way to the Kuhuna Gadola, who was a Jew, and, um, and uh, you know, he started, he started um, discus competitions in the actual confines of the temple, and he, uh, and he was involved with setting up, a, setting up a gymnasium under the Azara. So yes, the, you know, it, it was still under, there was still Korbanos going on, but it was, a, we'll call it a more cosmopolitan kind of, Temple, if you know what I'm saying. Um, so that's, uh, you know, when you read the history. Um, are there any extras? I just, if anybody could share, because we just, I apologize, I only printed out 40 something. Um, thank you so much. Is that your show, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, if you go, Levi has a certain kind of There's a method that says that Yehuda was the Melech, theoretically, had the might and the foresight and leadership. But because he's not, doesn't desire to say Yosef, Interesting. So maybe it's something to do with their passion. We do see that Levi has a lot of passion, certainly when it comes to Shrem, later by Yosef, oh, sorry, earlier by Yosef, Pinchas. We do see that, that Levi certainly has the passion. That might be an aspect of it. We're actually not going to go in that track altogether, interestingly enough, but it is a, that is something which is historically pointed to. Now, the question is, is on the other circle is, why, is it, why was it particularly the Greeks who the antagonists? Now, historically speaking, we know that. We know why. Meaning to say, they were, they were the empire of the time. The Alexander Great conquer, uh, conquered the whole swath of land all the way down to Egypt. We know that. But the question is, is <coughs> spiritually speaking, why was it that they were the antagonists and the protagonists were the, the Hashemunayim? Um, why oil? Why eight days? All, you know, the, great, the, the basic questions. We know all the answers, but the question is, maybe we can reframe all these, all these, um, all these answers. Um, why was it the Heichal that was particularly the point of of contention between the Hellenists and the and the and the Hashemunayim. Remember, the word Hellenist includes many, many, many Jews. Okay, so the the Jews the Jews are very much involved in this. So that's that that's that's the starting point of this of this discussion. What we're going to do is something a little unintuitive, and that's what we're going to do is we're going to read um, section two first. Okay, we're going to read section two and section three first. Set up a interesting framework which we're more familiar with, and then delve into a unusual way of looking at reality. So what he's going to do is this is going to be based on numbers, meaning to say the way the Maharal views this is that there's a certain coding level which the Torah is conveying to us on a numeric level, meaning to say there's, when, when I, we try to communicate between, the two, uh, between, let's say, two individuals, we use words, we use expressions. So one aspect of, of communication is also the numeric coding that's between two individuals. So the Torah is conveying to us a, a uh, certain framework within numbers. How does this work? Here's how he says it. Just, just before we read this, just as to bear in mind, what the Maharal, what some people call, is proto-Chasidos. Just to appreciate this. The Maharal came before there was any Chasidos. He delves a lot into the Kabbalistic notions of the Torah, but he couches them in 
basic philosophical terms. So this is mainstream machshava, but this became the stepping stool for further in, 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 uh, um, scholarship uh, into the Kabbalistic aspects of the Torah. So this is where we're starting. He says the following section 2. There was only sufficient oil to light for one day, but it lasted for eight days. So far, so good. We're all, this is all basic knowledge that we're with. <coughs> Why was it that the the, the, the nace, the miracle, took place through the medium of light? It was because that the miracle was extracted from the Kodesh Kadoshim, from the innermost sanctuary, an area in which the Greeks had no control. Somehow, whatever Greek power there was, couldn't access inside the Kodesh HaGadoshim. Why? What does that mean? Because <coughs> that was the place where the Kohen Gadol himself had his purview. It was, the, it was a place which was inaccessible. Only, he could only enter there once a year by himself. No one else could enter. The, the ore, apparently, the light, was <coughs> emanating not from the menorah, but from inside the Kodesh HaKadoshim. Okay? Interesting. What does, what does that really mean? That's why it lasted eight days. Because the Kodesh Kedoshim is within the eighth dimension, beyond the seven. What does that mean? Meaning like, how do we associate the inside of the Kodesh Kedoshim with eight as opposed to seven? Apparently, you see what's happening over here? The miracle lasts eight days. The Holy of Holies is a sanctum in which... Eight is prevalent above the seven outside of it. Greeks couldn't get inside of it. That's, the, that's sort of the, the logic he's setting up over here. We don't understand the logic yet. Well, he has going to set up why. Why is it that the innermost sanctuary is beyond the realm of seven? We all know this idea. This is the Maharal. This is, the, this is, the, this is Maharalian thought. The world that we know, the world that we perceive around us, is constrained by seven. It's constrained within the realm of seven. This world is created within the scope of seven. There were seven days of creation. If you want to add to this, by the way, that if you think about in terms of just some total of directions, if you were to have a three-dimensional axis, you know, you have the X-plane, the Y-plane, and the Z-plane, <coughs> right? Those are essentially, if you move in either direction, the positive and negative direction in all those, on all those planes, you're talking about six directions. And then, of course, there is the framework which holds it all together. That's the seventh, which is essentially the six days of creation, right? There's, there's, there's different aspects of the creation, six, six parts of it, held together by the seventh, right? That's, that's, this world is that constraint. So therefore he says, Whenever you see something which is beyond the realm of this world, it is in the confines of eight. After the seven days of creation. Now that's a, a very fascinating some um, argument to make because we know, first of all, in terms of the directions, there's seven, but in t the sixth and the one holding it together, the sixth, the seventh days of creation, the sixth and the one. It's interesting, what other seven did we have in the base of Migdash? The menorah, right? The menorah of the times of the base of Migdash was a seven branched candelabra, the ones not like the ones that we, we use for our Hanukkah. That's fascinating, which means to say, if you're thinking about what he's arguing, the Greeks could take control of the menorah. The Greeks did have power over the menorah because they had control over everything which was in the realm of seven. They couldn't access eight. Where was eight's sanctuary? The Holy of Holies. That's the way that he, he's looking at this over here. Just interesting, interesting point. They, they were matame, the, the oil of the regular menorah. It's some other eight-branched candelabra, which is more successful than the seven-branched one in this, in this framework. Let's, let's go a little further to what, what, what's really going on over here. So he moves, he moves on. That's, that's stage number one. Now, he says, what are examples of eight? So if we think about eight in our, in our religion, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is Bris Miller. That's the first thing he talks about. Um, circumcision is above nature. A male human being is born uncircumcised. That is the natural state of being. Meaning to say, 
nature prescribes uncircumcised, who prescribes the foreskin. That's why the milah is on the eighth day of the child's, of a young male's life. Interestingly enough, if you think about this, this goes back to a conversation that was had between Rabbi Akiva and Tonus Rufus. Tonus Rufus was, or Tinius Rufus, as they say academically, was a Roman procurator at the time. Now, Rabbi Akiva had an interesting relationship because you have many conversations between him and the Romans, but in the end they killed him. Right, so it, was, it didn't end, it didn't end um, very happily. He was one of the ten martyrs. In this conversation, which is recorded in the Midrash Tanchuma at the beginning of Parshas Tazria, where it talks about Bris Miller, in this conversation, so Tinius Ruf, Rufus asks him and says, you know, what are better, God's actions or human actions? Now, as a religious, as a religious person, you would naturally say, well, of course, God's actions, right? God created everything perfectly. So God, Rabbi Akiva unintuitively answered, well, actually, human actions. And he said, well, why, why do you say that? So he says, well, I know what you're about to ask me. You're about to ask me about Bris Miller. If you think that God's actions are so perfect, why is it that you take God's actions and you mutilate them? You have a perfect baby, and you know, the baby comes out of the womb. Eight days later, we're going to make a little adjustment, God. We've got just, you know, like we'll call it human plus. So why do you do that? And by the way, this is very much within Greek methodology, Greek, Greek thought. Greek thought was very much, very much put on a pedestal, the human form. The beauty of the human form, which is why at the times of the Greeks, before the Romans even, which the people, one of the, th- one of the things that the Hellenized Jews would do would to be to try to reverse the procedure of Miller, fascinatingly enough. I mean, say that the notion of the perfect or deformed human being, this was the question they had. Interestingly enough, when it comes to, the, to, to Miller, what the Rabbi Kiva was saying is, he says to, to Tinius Rufus, the continuation of the conversation, what's better, bread or wheat? Of course, bread, because God gave the world to us to process, to develop, to bring to sophisticated levels that we can use. God created the world 95% perfect. The other 5% he gave to humans. We, we take it a little too far sometimes, right? Um, we, we have to reverse our, our, our destruction. But nonetheless, in certain cases, what God is saying is, I want you to be the one who's going to take it to the next level. But that level is not natural. It's beyond natural. That's what the eight is over here. And this is why the Greeks were very upset about this. That's why the Hellenized um, Jews also, in a certain sense, felt uncomfortable. Because remember, the Greeks in their gymnasium would have large statues of <coughs> naked human beings. And they felt, they, felt, they felt uncomfortable being circumcised as the males because... This, they felt deformed. What the morale is saying is, no, that's exactly the access point the Greeks couldn't get. The eight beyond the seven. Now, he goes on one, one more level. He says, In the, the third line, or the second line of the top of page two, Everything that is, um, that is separate from the, the material world, that's why the that's why the holy of holies is beyond nature. He hasn't explained that hundred percent yet, so we need to get we need to get a little more depth on that. Let's just, let's just reverse for the framework right now. We have the, the we have the dimension of seven, which is the natural world. Everything outside of the Kodesh Kadashim is in the realm of seven. The Greeks had control of that. They didn't have control of the Kodesh Kadashim, from which emanates the Nase of Hanukkah, which is in the which is in the realm of eight, um, which relates to the Bris Miller. That's what he said up till now. Now he's going to explain why the Kodesh Kadashim is eight. So this, this relates to, to the Kohanim in the room. He says the following. In section 3, and then we're going to get to the end of section 3, and then think a little bit more broadly about what, the, what the, uh, this argument is saying. This is hinted in the Medrash in Vayikra, which says the following. With this, Aaron shall enter the Holy of Holies. Remember, Aaron HaKoyen only had one day of access to the Kodesh HaKadoshim, and he had to come in, this is a very dangerous procedure that he brought in the incense and the whole avoider on Yom Kippur that one day that he came in he needed to come with this and nobody explains exactly what the this is that's very important right because at this point in time it's you know he's walking a very thin tightrope of life so he needs to come in with this what's the this the Medrash has a few examples the Medrash says what that means is what it means to say is that an ordinary, ordinary, regular, physical human being cannot enter into the next realm, cannot enter into a realm which, which is essentially straddles spiritual, metaphysical, and physical in a physical state. 
So Aaron Cohen had no access. He couldn't access that next realm as a regular human being, barring if he had brismila. Means to say, if he was a human being who had been altered, had been shifted into a state of supernatural, into beyond natural, then he was able to access the beyond natural state, which is the Kodesh Gadashim. That's why the Midrash says, what's Bezois Yavar Aaron HaKodesh? Bezois means with the bris, with the miller. That was his only ticket in. Which allows him access into this realm. Which, by the way, is, is fascinating. Because what he's saying is, is that the, that small area, that small area in, that, in, in the Kodesh Gadashim wasn't necessarily just a physical space. It was a metaphysical space. And we see, by the way, that, the, the, that there's certain things which re- reflect that. As an example, the Gomorrah Bab Basra, Sadi Testament Aleph says that if you do the measurements that are given in Tanakh of the Kodesh Kodashim with the Aaron in it, you find an interesting thing. That there is, the, that the space on the Aaron on the one side and the space on the Aaron on the, on, the, on the other side of it add up to the sum total of the width of the room. Now that's generally a problem because for those of us who try to put furniture in the room, that's, uh, we wish that it worked that way. Right, but it doesn't work that way because usually if you have an item, let's say I have a grand piano, I need to measure the width of the piano and I need to find space in the room that's going to be taken up. But apparently with the, with the iron, you measure it from the one side to its side, the one side of the room to, it, to, the side, to its side, the other side of the room to its side, and apparently those two widths added up to the entire width of the room. Which meant what the Gomorrah's conclusion is, the iron, ain't min hamida. The iron is not measured, which means to say, in a certain sense, the, ru- the rules of existence don't work the same there as they do anywhere else in the world. The dimension is not seven. It doesn't, it's not within the constraints of the physics. So how could a human being access that domain only when he himself has some mark that he is beyond the physics? That's what the Aaron, Aaron is entering into. That. So that's what we're being told over here. Fascinating, fascinating uh, um, thought process. For those who, um, for those who recently, there was a, there was a, um, a uh, Trying to try remember what the what the, the, the name of it was. <coughs> mm, I, I, the, there's a name of a movie which came out recently about time travel, um, and about uh, just very fascinating about entering into the real realm of aliens into sub um, into into uh, extraterrestrial life, and they enter into this the, the, the spaceship and and the domains shift, that gravity shifts sideways, and the the, the realm of communication is is beyond time. It's just, you, you may say, Lahavdil, just to give a sense of what it really means to be beyond the realm of here. Um, very interesting. I think, I think it is, I don't remember the name, Arrival? Arrival, exactly, thank you. So when you say, when you enter into a different domain, there's the, the rules shift. The rules have shifted over here and you can only access in this particular way. That's why, now he adds one extra cherry over here, which is, in the, four, in the fifth line of the section three, he says that's why it is that the Aaron, the Ark, which contained the Torah, is the Torah itself is beyond that which is physical. Of course, the Torah pervades the realm of seven because it was given after seven. How do we know that? We know Shiva Shavuos Tisparloch, that it was after seven weeks. Isn't that interesting? The Torah was only given after we managed to get through the realm of seven, seven times. That's when the Torah was given to us, because the Torah really doesn't belong in the constraints of this physical world. He quotes, this is just an interesting thing to notice. If you read the Telim Kufyu test, which is a very, very long, long mizmor, so after the first seven psukim, then we reach the Pasuk, then it says, Husar Torah, Oh, he doesn't quote it over here. He, say, uh, uh, um, he quotes it elsewhere that the eighth Pasuk refers to the Torah, meaning to say once you get beyond seven, that's when you enter into the realm of Torah. And the Torah itself is divided into eight faces. What that, what that means to say is that there's seven regular facets of the Torah and there's an eighth facet which is beyond the realm of this world. Okay, so... Just, just, just to appreciate what the extra two steps that he's given us over here. Number one is, is that the Kodesh Kodashim is a metaphysical realm, which is not constrained by the physics. And therefore, the coin can only access it with the ticket of Miller, which is his extra, call it extra physical experience. And he enters into this realm, which is what's emanating, what's the, the, what can live in this place is the, we'll call it original Torah, the Torah which predated the world, this, the, this Aish, 
the white and black fires that the Ramban talks about, this primordial existence of Torah, of Torah which exists in the, in the Ark. Now, this is where the, we, we get to the, to, uh, to the conclusion of this idea. And this is where everything matches. This is the, the overlap of the, of the Venn diagram. In the external temple, we have a seven-branched candelabra. But in the internal temple, there's the level what's called Kodesh, which is the regular holy. And then there's the Kodesh Kodashim. In the innermost sanctuary, we have the Kodesh Kodashim. Which was the place of the real light. Not human-made light, but supernatural light. He says the reason why we call the Aaron the Ark, Aaron is because not because it's a closet, as we use the word today, but it comes from the word or itself. It comes from light, which is in a certain sense very cerebral, very beyond the physics. It's the eighth level of the, it's the eighth in the, um, in the, in the octave. And that's why the nace of Hanukkah was derived from the innermost sanctuary. How do they get this? The only way they could light the menorah was they had to take the oil which was sealed with the coin Godel's seal. The coin Godel has the, serves inside with eight, the eight clothes. The only time he could get in was with the eight clothes of service. Which is a representation of him having access to the eighth realm. The reason why the candles could light for eight days was because he could access that point that they couldn't reach, which was the innermost part. He didn't wear That's a great question. That's a great question. I'm not sure the answer to that. Because he actually only went down to the four garments before he entered in. Very good question. I'm not sure. According to everything you're saying here, why did the Kohen go in on the eighth day? Oh, excellent. Excellent question. We'll see in a second. Great question. We're gonna, on the eighth day of, of Tishrei. Excellent question. We're going to see that in just a second. We're, we're, we're only at the beginning of, this, of, of his argument here. Excellent question. He goes on the tenth day. Why the tenth day? So here we go. Let's just, let's just appreciate what's going on over here. In this, in, the, in, this, in this Venn diagram, we have the Greeks, we have the temple, we have the Kohen. Apparently the temple itself is broken up into two levels, it sounds like. The outer level of the temple is accessible via Greek culture, but the internal level of the temple cannot be accessed by Greek culture. Only the Kohen Gol can, can access that. And that's why the resolution came from the innermost, innermost sanctum. The light which was derived from there was not natural, which is why that not natural light lasted for eight days, representing the, that corner that the Greeks couldn't access. That's, that's what ultimately what he said. And he's played it through the numbers, the, the coding of numbers of the seven versus eight. Okay, so this is, this is what he said. Let's just try to appreciate this with two questions. Question number one is, why Greeks? Question number two is, why Kohanim? And then we can come back to the, to, to the, to the, the Maral looks at this. First of all, why Greeks? Who are the Greeks? So in Jewish history, interestingly enough, let's take a look at the very top of page four. This, 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 this section over here is a... Um, is a section of what's called the Seder Olam. Seder Olam is a, is a lesser known Midrash, which is of 32 chapters, and it is interestingly enough a, his, a history. Most of Rashi's time and dating goes back to the Seder Olam. You know, Rashi says that Yitzhak was 37 years old at the Akeda, and then Rivka was three years old. The whole, right there, the, all that comes from Seder Olam. That's the Midrashic history line. There are those who debate it. Right, the Ibn Ezra doesn't always accept the Seder Olam, but Rashi's bedrock of Jewish of dating is the Seder Olam, and most people don't know this, it's actually fascinating just to read through it. The Seder Olam goes all the way from creation till the very last line. This is the last chapter, you know, the last section in Seder Olam. He says the following, um, the end of the first line is talking about the rise of Greece. What's this referring to? Who Alexandros Makdon. We're talking about this great king that Daniel talks about, Daniel talks about, who is Alexander the Macedonian. Alexander the Great, Shemolach Yud Beishana, who ruled for 12 years, Ad Khan, Hayu Hanavi'im, Misnabi'im, Beruach HaKodesh, Mikan Ve'elach, Hat Oznecha, Ushma Divrecha Chomim. Till the point that Alexander the Great rose and the Greek Empire spread, the Greeks were there before, until the, Greeks, the Greek Empire spread across the Middle and Far East, there was Nevoah. Once Greece rose, Nevoah ceased to be, 
And the only way we could access God was through, through wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, the only way we have access to what's divine is by thinking about it. This is one of the seismic shifts in all of world histories. If you're to divide up the world into you know, different slices, this is one of the most important changes in history. Is before you wanted God, speak to the prophets. After, God, after that, speak to, the, speak to the sages. Do the sages have it clear? Not always. They try to think through to access where God is. It's a lot more murky. It's a lot more cloudier. We're talking at the age over here, what the, what the Seder Olam is essentially doing, is saying that Chagah Zechariah Malachi, while they're re-establishing the second base of Migdash in Israel, while that's happening, the Greeks are rising. As the Greeks are rising, the prophets end. As the prophets end, thought and wisdom now takes over, which is fascinating because the Greeks, of course, were the greatest philosophers of all time. Meaning as we are turning to our sages, the Anshe Knesset Agdola, because that's all we have left, and as the prophets of the Anshe Knesset Agdola die out, then, on the other hand, there's this rising bastion of philosophy in the world, which is through Greece. Now, interestingly enough, there are times where Greek philosophy, many times Greek philosophy, is in fact diverges from Torah thoughts. Right? The, the, the Greeks, in the numerous levels and numerous layers um, of philosophical thinking, diverged many times because sometimes when you're thinking without a prophet, you end up at the wrong train station. Right? So, uh, we, what's interesting is if you follow through a number of the, the thoughts, as David will tell you, when you go through Moran of Vuchim, you'll see the Rambam in many cases will extol the virtues of Aristotle and the Greeks, and many times he'll have to say, but ad kan yater, that, that there are certain philosophies just don't work. And then there are people who are super commentaries on the Rambam saying, well, even what the Rambam accepted is, not, is, not, is, uh, is too much of, of Greek philosophy. Just an example, and I want to work just as an example of this, of the, with the framework used by the Ramban. Nachmanides. Nachmanides disagreed with the Rambam on a, on a number of points. Here's how he quotes the Greeks. And I think his definition of Greek wisdom is very helpful to us here in trying to understand what's really going on over here. So the Ramban, Nachmanides, is actually quoted twice. He, he's quoted, he, one time he talks about this is in his, in his writings on a ma'amar called Torah Sashem Tamim, which is to be found in the writings of the Ramban. And he says an interesting, this, he's quoting Aristotle and he says the following. In source 4, he's talking about the creation of the world. Note that the Greeks, in general, many of the Greek philosophers, Aristotle, the head of them, believed that the world was kadmon, which means to say that the world always existed. There was never a starting point. You know, you can imagine the Rambam, when the Rambam, if the Rambam had been living in the year 1969, when they discovered, you know, the radiation of the Big Bang, that there was a starting point. You can imagine the Rambam jumping up from his, his desk and shouting Eureka, because all the philosophical proofs that he used were finally proven physically that there was a beginning, a beginning point. The Greeks didn't believe that, right? So the Rambam, the, this is what the Rambam is saying over here. In the second paragraph, he says, there You can see now the cruelty. He doesn't call it the twistedness. He doesn't call it the intellectual dishonesty. He calls it the cruelty of Aristotle. He says he would, dis he would disagree with centuries of tradition of what everybody knew existed. If you were to go back a few generations and you say, was there Sinai? Was there creation? Everybody would say, of course there was, because we saw it. We were told by our parents and our parents' parents and our parents' parents' parents. And it comes along Greek philosophy and says, ah, well, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. He says, Wisdom in those days, in that age, was spiritual. It wasn't simply about what you told and what you could prove. Like the dark forces in the world. That wasn't something you put into a lab and measured, you know, how many demons are escaping this test tube right now, right? That's not something you could measure. When people lived close to creation, they knew creation existed because they lived near, near that time. Adam told his children, Enosh, his grandchild, Enosh, you, were, you know, I was created by God. Everybody knew that. There was no, nothing to talk about. Nobody would disagree with God. So what was their problem at the times of, at the times of Adam and thereafter was close to creation was serving those other powers. Those other powers are so proficient, so powerful. It wasn't about thinking. It was about misguided power. That's why they served Avodah Zorah. 
He said, comes along the Greeks and they say, no, the prophecy has ended. We no longer have this very powerful spiritual realm we're dealing with. If I can't measure it, it doesn't exist. I think, therefore I am. There's nothing, there's nothing that, that, that cannot be measured. A barometer, an altimeter, a... Uh, Thermometer, anything I can put a, mom, a meter into exists. Anything outside of that, not for me. Right? So this is what the Ramban calls is, um, is achzarius. He calls this cruelty because ultimately you're denying a whole subterrain of existence, of spiritual existence, which everybody knew about. So the world, never, the world didn't have a starting point. We, we can't prove that. Right? So it must have just always existed. Now, it's not, it's not that simple. He has, he, write, he has four books. Aristotle has four books on this. It's not like he just um, you know, whipped this out one day. But the point is, he says, look, we, can, we have to think about it, we have to me- measure it, and uh, hypothesize, and if there's no null hypothesis, and it's not proven, then that's it, that it is as it is. Says, says the Ramban, that's, that's, that's where Greek culture missed it. His example of that, remember he talked about this notion of shadim, of de, like we'll call it darker spirits in the world? Interestingly enough, the Ramban refers back to this. This section of the Ramban, in fact, was taken out by the censor in his Pirush on the Torah, and in the r- later editions, now we're able to find it. This is where the Ramban is talking about what happens on Yom Kippur. Of course, Yom Kippur seems to be this interesting day in the Hanukkah discussion for some reason. On, the Hanukkah we ha- on, on Yom Kippur, we have this very odd procedure. We know that we take two Seirim, and the one Seir is sent as a Korban, and the other one is sent to a place called Azazel. This, there was this valley that threw the Seir over, the, over, the, over, the, over Azazel. And the Ramban says, what is really going on over here? You know, this is like... Very strange stuff, right? So we're not going to read the whole Ramban, but just listen to the, listen to the way he, he, he sets this up. In, in source 6, he says, There's going to be one lottery to Azazel. It is a, uh, a high mountain. Okay, it's a hard place. Um, skip to the next paragraph. Ra, what's, what's the initials Resh Aleph stand for? He's quoting somebody. Rabbeinu, Rebbe Avraham. He's quoting the Ibn Ezra. So he quotes the Ibn Ezra. He usually disagrees with the Ibn Ezra. Interestingly enough, he, dis- he actually accepts the Ibn Ezra in this particular forum. Both Shmuel the Gemara says that both those Seirim went to God. Even though it doesn't say that the one that goes to the cliff is to Hashem. Ve'ein sorech. Says the Ibn Ezra, you don't need to be that religious. I mean, you, say, it's, you don't have to say that the second seer went to God. The one that was thrown over the, over the edge of the, of the cliff wasn't a korban. It wasn't shechted, it died on the way down. If you can understand the word after Azazel, then you will understand what it really means. I mean, to say, the Ibn Ezra is saying yes. There's something deeply Kabbalistic about the second, the second goat. Well, of course, we always know in paganism today, the goat is a very <coughs> substantial sign, right? There are other words related to this in the Torah. When you turn 33, I'll tell you what it means. It says the Ibn Ezra. Right, I mean, say, this is not for novices. That's what the Ibn Ezra is essentially saying. Says the Ramban, he says, he's hiding, he's obfuscating the ball. I'm going to reveal it to you, says the Ramban. Um, it's Rabin because the rabbis talked about this. And the, and the Ramban goes on to explain, it's worthwhile seeing inside. And again, this might be my misinterpretation, but this is what the Ramban says. Is Ramban quotes Numen's Midrashim, where there is a power. There's a dark force in the world, which is, which is to be found in the areas of Midbar, and Hashem is telling us, this is the one time where Hashem says, is that we are turning towards that force and giving that force something which is going to take the sins of B'nai Israel. It's crazy, crazy idea, because this sounds dramatically close to Avodah Zorah and Kishof, where then the Ramban addresses that by saying, yeah, well, God told us this is the one time that we do it in this. At the end of this, don't sacrifice to the Seirim, these powers, only this particular, this some dark stuff over here the Ramban is talking about. Now, I don't want to walk out over here thinking that Yom Kippur is about Azara Chas Fashalam. What the Ramban is saying is that there are dark forces in the world, and the Hashem is, is telling us that the Averos, the, 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 the negative energy generated by Averos, 
are in a certain sense related to that force. Right, and when we're cleansing the Averos, we, re- we go back to where those dark forces come from, which our Kodesh Baruch, of course, is on top of all the dark forces, but nonetheless, we relate to that. And at the end of this paragraph, the Ramban then turns back to the Greeks. Because remember, we're talking about deeply spiritual stuff. The Ramban says at the very, very end, on the bottom of source, uh, page 5, and that's why it says the end of this whole section of Yom Kippur is don't sacrifice to those Seirim. Don't sacrifice, don't on your own accord go and sacrifice that, that notion called Seir, these dark forces. There are many examples of this. He says it's very clear. Now, that's, according to the Ramban, it's very clear. To us, uh, to us we're going to spend our life on trying to understand this. Unless you try to get into the, the spiritual exactitude of what a korban is. This is if you want to understand this, there's necromancy. Right? So I mean, say, don't, don't, don't go into that uh, domain. It's understood in the, in the, in the intellectual realm. And it's only understood by those who understand the depths I'm not going to explain it. That doesn't mean to say I don't want to explain it. What that means to say is that there aren't sufficient words to explain that. Words limit this concept because it's too powerful for words. Now, he says the following. Because then we'd have to explain it in words to now explain away to those people who follow the Greek. Who's the Greek? Aristotle. Okay, Asher Hikhish Koldavar Zulus Zulasi Hamurgashloi, who said that nothing existed unless he could feel it. Vehigis Dartoi, and he became very arrogant, like Shavu Vitamidam Arashayim, that he and his students, the evil students, Kikol Inyan Shulahi Sig Elov, who Besvarasoi and Enu Emes, who believes that unless you can conceptualize it within your small, limited logical framework, it doesn't exist. So this is the Ramban. This is an example where the Ramban is, is, is referring to the Greeks. The Greeks simply don't have access to the spiritual, the metaphysical domain. We start talking about anything metaphysical, they don't have access. Because all they can access is what's in the constraints and the limits of human logic and the five senses which we are given. That's all they have. So now coming back to this for a moment. Where do the Greeks have access to? Apparently only the outer framework of temple. That's what, that's what, the, that's what the, we're, we're, the Ramaral is saying. They can only access that which is felt, that which is measured, that which is thought. Now, let's go a little further. Why the Kohanim? That was question one. Why the Kohanim? Who are the Kohanim? Interestingly enough, the Gemara in Adarim says, the Gemara asks a very famous question, which has halakhic ramifications, and that is, the Kohanim, the, are the Kohanim our shlichim or God's shlichim? Are they the people serving in God's temple on their behalf, right, Mary? Or are they the people serving us, bringing our kobanas to God? Which one is it, right? Which way? Are they going up, up from us or are they coming down from God ultimately? Where are they? And the Gomorrah leaves it in a, as an as a, as a ambiguous question. Where are they? Are they, are they coming up from us or are they coming down from God? Which means to say that they might be the people who have the further access, like the Maharal was saying, into a realm beyond which the pedestrian, the proletariat has access to. An example of this. And I, 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 this, is, this is famous on Tisha B'Av. And this, this is tragic. An example of, um, of what this means. Two, two cases. We have, we, one of the kinos on Tisha B'Av is about this, the children of Rabbi Shmuel ben Elisha, the Kohen Godel. Remember this? And the, his daughter and his son were sold into slavery. And the slave owner said, oh, what beautiful children. Let me breed them. And um, so he put them into the room together. And all night they spent crying that they were the children of the Kohen Godel were being mated by this, by this slave owner. And in the morning they saw that they were brother and sister, and they hugged each other and died weeping. That's the, that's the, that's the, the, the kinna. We have a kinna on this just after Isaiah Levonon, or just before Isaiah Levonon in, um, in, on, uh, um, on Tisha B'Av. And, and that's what, when Yirmiyahu says, he's referring to these two children. Now, it's strange because all the other kinos are talking about massive national calamities. This one's about two children. Now, they could be exemplars of the greater tragedy, but in a certain sense, it's strange. But then the Gemara goes on to the next story. This is the Gemara in Gittin. Take a look at the top of page um, 7. Now, that story we know more, actually, we're more well-versed with. The following story we're not as well-versed with. Omeresh Lakish. Master Isha Achas, but Sofnas Bas Peniel Shema. There was a, a young lady whose name was Sofnas Baspaniel. 
Why? Tzofnas shall call Tzofin b'yofya. Tzofnas means because everybody would gaze at her beauty. Bas Peniel Bito shall coin Godel. Shishamash lifnai v'lifnim. She was called Peniel because internally Pnim Ekel. The inside aspect of the God. Shishimash lifnai v'lifnim. Shinis alobai shavai kol halayla. She was raped all night. Lemachar hilbisho shiva chalukim v'etziel ha-machra. He, the, the slave owner at the time of the destruction of the Bezaminosh, brought her out to sail. Ba'adam echo shei mechura b'yoyser. A disgusting individual came over and said, he says, unclothe her. Omar, Omar, the slave owner said, And um, and the slave owner said, he says, buy or don't buy her. She's the most beautiful creature in the world. Omar loy. He says, no, sorry, I want to see my merchandise. He ripped off the, the six outer garments. She ripped the seventh garment and fell down to the dust. Amra lefonav. You don't care about me, a human being. Don't you care about your name? And that's what Yermio cries about, this particular case. My daughter, who's wearing sackcloth and rolling in the dust. That's what Yermio is talking about, is this girl. Again, do you see something interesting? It's about an individual tragedy. But it's not an individual tragedy. Do you notice something interesting? Both these stories are about the children of... Isn't it interesting that when the slave traders move in, all they can see is physical beauty. Do you see what's happening here? Let's breed them. That's what's happening. The world walks in and they see the Quranim and they say, wow, isn't that beautiful? Can't we breed them? Remember the face of Rabbi Shmuel that the daughter of, uh, wanted to take off and they stripped off his face, the skin of his face to make a mask so she keep, could, could keep it? He's so beautiful. Because when you live in the realm of what you can see and what you can feel, all you can see when you see the sublime spiritual beauty is the physical remains of it. Give me the face. Give me the daughter. Give me the, let me breed them. Do you see what the Gemara is talking about here? The tragedy is, is when a physical, gross human being looks at spiritual beauty, all they can see is the physical beauty. That's all they can have access to. That's the tragedy of these two stories over here. It's not the tragedy of individuals. It's the tragedy of the loss of a world in which you could see something special anymore. That's what's happening in this Gemara. That's what the Quranim were, and that's what the Greeks missed. Let's come back now to a full, full circle. We're not going to do this inside, but this is really worthwhile to see in the, in the Maharal himself. And I'll leave it to you in the first section for your, for your own edification as it gets further. But let's say, take a look at this. If you just so flip to the last page for just a second. Now the Maharal enters into the, we'll call it the super, um, the superstructure of, of, of numbers. Let's take a look at the word Heichal. The word Heichal is, um, is, to, is in fact, um, if you look at the gematria of it, it's a 5, it's a 10, it's a 20, and a 30. That gives us? That gives us 65, right? So Heichal is 65. 5, 10, 15, right? 20 and 30 is now the 50, uh, 50 so that's 65. What's Yavon? Yavon is, six, uh, is 10, 6, and 50, which is 66. Which means, can the Greeks control the sanctuary? The answer is... Yes, they are one notch above Heichal. The Greeks, Yavon is one notch above Heichal. You give them a beautiful edifice. You give them the daughter of a crying goddle. Can they control it? Yes, they can even destroy it. They can even look at it and say, pretty, pretty. And then they can make whatever they feel out of it. That's what, that, that's what they're going to do to it. But, but, then we have the people who resolve, uh, resolve this. And now the Kohanim. What's the gematria of Kohen? 75. 75. 25 and 50. Isn't it interesting that it's 75? Because remember, the Kohen Godel is the person who is the bridge character between our domain and God's domain. Is he Shluche Didon or Shluche Derachmona? Is he the bridge between us or God? 75 is the merger between the sevens and the eights, right? He's the mid-range person who's able to access into the realm beyond the physical. So he's the only person who's able to access into the domain beyond God, which is the realm of eights, which is in the Kodesh Kadoshim. But let's think about this more carefully. Look at the word Heichal very carefully now. Let's come back to this. This is what the Maharal says. The word Heichal, if you actually spell it out, has got a Tzere under the, under the hay, which means there's actually a hidden letter in the word Heichal. If you really spell it out, male, which means to say full, with all its pronunciation, it's actually spelled hey, yud, yud, chof, lamed. There's a hidden yud that is attached to the tzere, which means, what is the actual numeric value of heichal? It is 75, which means that the temple of God is divided into two strata. There's the external strata. There's the beautiful, magnificent edifice that the Greeks walk into and place their flags and stamp their boots on. 
And that's what they can control. And they can control the candelabra. And they can make it a gymnasium. And they can do what they want with it. But you know what? There's one domain they simply have no access to. And that's the internal do domain that's in the Kodesh Gadoshim, where they simply can't see. They simply can't access because it is beyond the realm of human thought. It is beyond measuring tapes. It is beyond any meters. It's beyond conception. That's the realm which only the Kohen Gadol can ac access on one day with his supernatural experience, which is his brismila. Bezois, Yavo, Aaron, Allah, Kodesh. Says the Maharal, just to, to give you an example of this. Lahavdil. You know, Arturo Toscanini was a famous conductor the last generation, um, and, he, and somebody, he was getting very frustrated with a particular violinist. And the violinist, uh, and the man just wasn't getting it. So he says, well, what am I supposed to do, Mr. Conductor? So he pulls out, he's in frustration, he, he pulls out a tissue and he says, he says, you're missing it, it's, it's like this. And he lets the, tissue, the, 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 the handkerchief wave to the ground slowly. That's what you're missing, meaning the man was reading the notes. The man was doing everything that was on the sheet music. He was listening to the conductor intently. But what was he missing? He was missing the spirit of the music. He was missing what's, the, what's really behind. You can't, try, you can't teach that. You can't, it's, it's, like, it's like bike riding, right? Once you get it, you get it. Once you don't have it, no matter how many books you read on it, you're not going to get it, right? That's what's happening over here. The Greeks thought they had it, but they had only so much access. That's what the, the, the Maharal says. That's why it is that the miracle of Hanukkah emanated from the realm beyond control. And that's why it was eight days. That's why the miracle, it wasn't just because, oh, practically speaking, you know, we needed to get there, it took seven days, so it's for Tara. There's, there's, there, that's true too. But the fact is that this miracle lasted beyond where anybody else could control. When we look at those candles in the night of Hanukkah, we're not just looking at combustion and oxygen in the air and everything else happening. That's, that's true too. What we're looking is we're looking beyond. And we're saying, you know, there still is beauty in this world. And there's a beauty in this world which cannot be captured in a picture, in a tag, on Facebook. There's something much beyond anything we ever see. And that's the realm of Kedusha. That's the Lifnai V'Lifnim, which we celebrate even beyond the Beis HaMetrus itself. Have a Chanukah Sameach. Thank you.